There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everyone. We have a lot to get to tonight, but we begin the readout tonight with the latest on the midterm six days, six after the election. Over the weekend, NBC projected Democrats will maintain control of the Senate, but the majority in the House is still up in the air. And a number of other key races remain uncalled, including the closely watched Arizona governor's race between Democrat Katie Hobbs and soft lens focused MAGA Republican Carrie Lake. Vote counting has been ongoing since Tuesday with officials in the state's 15 counties releasing tallies of votes as they have been processed. But we're expecting an update on that race this evening. And joining me now for more with the very latest is, this, is the only, the one and only Map Daddy, as they call him on the TikTok, Steve Kornacki at the big board. Yeah, Joy, we are expecting a major update probably in the 8 to 9 p.m. hour in Arizona, and it's going to come from Maricopa County here, the biggest in the state by far, and they have been counting up. We've been talking about this. You've been following it for the last week, this drama in Arizona, this big, big group of ballots. There were almost 300,000 of them. They were ballots. They were mail-in ballots that voters brought into the polls in person on Election Day. Very specific type of vote there. Um, Republicans have been doing pretty well with them, but the story has been that Carrie Lake has not been doing as well with this type of vote as she had hoped. And so you see right now she trails. Carrie Lake does 24,719 votes statewide. This big batch between eight and nine tonight that we're expecting from Maricopa County may sort of be the Hail Mary pass for her because she's got to not just win it. She's got to win it by a huge margin so that she can erase this lead that Katie Hobbs has built statewide, because basically outside of Maricopa County, what else is left in Arizona? Well, we are this hour expecting an update from Pima County. That's where Tucson is. And you can see this is a strongly Democratic county. This is the second biggest county in the state. So the expectation is the release that will come this hour out of Pima, if it indeed, if the uh, stick to the timeline officials are forecasting there, there's an update this hour that could add to Hobbs's lead statewide. There are some smaller rural red counties with votes to report to that might undo some of what Hobbs gains out of Pima. And again, that's what makes Maricopa maybe the ball game here, because it's just by yeah. far the biggest in the state. It's by far the biggest source of outstanding votes. And again, what we're going to be looking for in that eight o'clock update, eight o'clock hour update, not just does Carrie Lake win those votes. Does she win them by a giant margin? Because that's what she needs at this point. Uh, Steve Kornacki, enjoyed you on SNL this weekend. I'm slightly jealous that you get to be on that show. Great job. Uh, appreciate you, man. And you Thanks. know they call you Mac Daddy? You're aware of that, right? Did they call uh, you Mac Daddy? I don't Mac know. Daddy? I don't know anything. They got. <laughs> People show me now links to know. things, and I throw my hands up in the air and say, I have no idea what the world's come to. <laughs> the more you know. Steve Kornacki, thank you very much, man. All right, everybody. Well, Democrats and everyone else who cares about democracy are breathing a huge sigh of relief. After every single election-denying candidate who would have have power over elections in a swing state lost, or in Carrie Lake's case, is pretty much on her way to losing their elections, which is good news for 2024, given that Trump or whichever Republican won't be able to steal the election 
by having Republican states ignore the votes and just hand the Electoral College over. But the threat to democracy isn't over, friends. The Republican Party is still an extremist party. As The Atlantic's Ron Brownstein points out, while in Democratic-leaning and swing states, voters last week delivered an unmistakable cry of resistance to the restrictive Republican social agenda, in red states, where Republicans have actually imposed that agenda over the past two years, Republican governors cruised to re-election without any discernible backlash. Just look at states like Texas and Florida. But the new media meme that replaces the old inflation and crime media meme, have you, have you noticed that nobody's talking about those things anymore? Is that after the supposed red wave turned into a red wedding, infighting Republicans will now shift away from MAGA extremism and find their way to the safe ideological middle. I mean, over the past week, there's been a growing number of Republicans distancing themselves from Donald Trump. But is that really a change or just a change back? Once Trump-friendly Congressman Mo Brooks said it would be a bad mistake to nominate Trump as the party's 2024 presidential nominee, calling him, quote, dishonest, disloyal, incompetent, and crude. But Brooks, Brooks's origin isn't the center. It's the Tea Party. And if Republicans do dump, dump Trump and his MAGA cronies, which, keep in mind, would come only after losing three consecutive elections, plus a Georgia runoff, two impeachments, and an armed insurrection to try to overthrow the government. The alternative is shaping up to be Ron DeSantis, whose priorities as Florida governor include going after Mickey Mouse, teachers, and drag brunches, and yelling at school kids because they're wearing masks to prevent COVID. And oh, did I mention he started out as a member of, say it with me, the Tea Party. And with Trump supposedly gearing up to announce another run for president tomorrow, it's abundantly clear that even if some Beltway Republicans want him to go away, there is a very high chance that Trump won't listen, as this weekend's Saturday Night Live depicted perfectly. Don't you need to, like, walk your daughter down the aisle? Missed it. Anyway, what are you guys talking about? What are you guys talking about? You see Fablemans? Mr. President, I don't know how to tell you this, but... We've moved on. We can't have you on the show anymore. What? What did I do? It's because you lost. Uh, Mr. President, we just don't see a future with you. But you know what? We can still be friends, okay? So bye-bye now. Wait, 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 wait. I have a big announcement, no. November 15th. Hey, don't push me off. I have a big announcement, and it's not what you think. Joining me now is Michelle Goldberg, New York Times columnist and MSNBC political analyst, and Matthew Dowd, political strategist and founder of Country Over Party. And, you know, Matt, I want to start with you on this, because I feel like the biggest unrecognized fact in media coverage over the past probably decade has been not realizing that the Tea Party was already extreme. It was an extremist movement against President Obama backed by people like the Koch brothers, and it is now the basis of the party and the base of the MAGA movement. Let me just go through it. Current senators who are Tea Party, Cruz, Rubio, Ron Johnson, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, who wants to get rid of Social Security, um, Tim Scott, now Johnson also wants to get rid of, of Social Security, congressmen who were Tea Party and then became MAGA and wanted to overthrow the election. Louis Gohmert, Matt Gates, Mo Brooks. Steve Scalise is in leadership. He was a Tea Partier. Jim Jordan. That doesn't even include Ron DeSantis, who was, uh, who was governor, Tea Party. Jeff Sessions, Mick Mulvaney, who joined the Trump cabinet. Mark Meadows. I could go on and on. And let me just show y'all, remember, remind you what the Tea Party was. Here are their protests. This is what they looked like. Can we just show this? This is cut five for my one. There. This is the Tea Party movement. This was pre-MAGA. 
You see them? And now here they are protesting against Obamacare. years before the insurrection when they just came back and just busted in the building. So the idea that they're somehow going to moderate instead of just pivot right back to that, which is what Ron DeSantis is, it mystifies me that anyone believes it. Your thoughts? Well, uh, this is why I said, I, I said this, and I don't know if you remember, I said in September of 2015, at September of 2015, that Donald Trump would be the Republican nominee of the party. Not that I had some great insight into this, but I did know what the Republican Party had become. And Donald Trump didn't change the Republican Party. Donald Trump didn't change it. He revealed it. He revealed it for who they are. And that's the problem they have. Just pushing Donald Trump off the stage is not going to even come close to solving the problem because this is who they are. They are now the villagers who carried the torches are now in charge of the village. And so the Republicans have allowed this to happen. And so they've allowed all the barriers to be knocked down, no, to have no guardrails, have nothing. And their problem is fundamentally now, not with Donald Trump, in my view, though he's a proximate problem for them. The problem is their base, because their base is completely out of sync with the sort of mainstream of America. That's the problem. And until they start speaking truth to their base, until they start saying, no, we don't believe any of that. That's not true. That's not true. We shouldn't do that. This problem is fundamentally not going to be solved because the Republican Party existed before Donald Trump and it's going to exist after Donald Trump. This is who they are. And, and Michelle, I mean, you can go back to the Pew Research and Public Religion Research Institute, all their data. People who were with the Tea Party were fundamentally motivated by fear of demographic change, anger toward groups like Muslims, anger toward women, anger a lot toward blacks and black people voting. It was the same drivers that made MAGAism. And then everyone was like shocked. Oh, my God, the Republicans like Trump. Yeah, because he expressed anger <laughs> at all of those exact same groups. Now you have Tea Partiers like Matt Gates and uh, Ted Cruz saying, we don't want Mitch McConnell to be the leader of the party in the Senate anymore. And we don't want Kevin McCarthy, who are non-Tea Partiers. Like, they want to go to, like, Jim Jordan. They want to go back mm -hmm. to the, the Tea Party people, right? That, that's the well, change. Look, I, think, I mean, I think that there are both, with Donald Trump, there's both kind of continuities with what the Republican Party was before him and um, certain radical breaks. I mean, I wrote a book that came out in 2006. The subtitle was The Rise of Christian Nationalism. So I've obviously been concerned about the far right of the Republican Party for quite some time. At the same time, I do think that there are things that are particularly sinister about Donald Trump. I mean, I think that there is a level of shamelessness and chaos and sort of blatant criminality that is distinct. I mean, it's been interesting to see how many of the election deniers, Carrie Lake aside, how many of the election deniers who have run for various offices have sort of not had the audacity that Trump had to try to stir up a mob against their own losses. There's a very specific sort of sociopath that I think that Trump has. But I also don't think that the alternatives to Trump are going to be more ideologically moderate. They will, I think, be a little bit more orderly. Exactly. Well, I, I mean, look, it, it, Matt, I mean, it, Trump took MAGA and gave it a king. 
and and tied it to a very right wing mean Jesus. He just took it and just added the Christian nationalism to it. He didn't innovate anything. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. Go ahead. No, I was going to say what I wanted to say is what's amazing. And I agree with what Michelle just said. Well, what's amazing, though, is, is, yes, Donald Trump did those things. But the, what happened is the Republican Party said that's fine by us. Right. Yes. They, it went from Donald Trump did all these sort of things are anti norms. But now the Republican Party has said that's fine. What I think it's revealed, what I think it's going to show is people have to look at Kerry Lake. Kerry Lake acts the most like Donald Trump of all the candidates. Mm -hmm. And what you saw was not there's not some issue lineup. There's not a whole degree of issues they all agree on other than the fact they don't like democracy. They all seem to agree on that. They don't like democracy, a full failed democracy. What they do all is act in this mean, indecent course format. And because they've realized they can do that and stir up the Republican base in the course of this. So so when if we get past Donald Trump and the Republican Party as the nominee, it's going to be a mean, coarse, indecent person because that's what's now become acceptable. It's the reason they like DeSantis, Michelle. They only like him because of how mean he is. He's a little guy. He's a little, he's a little diminutive guy. He's like a little mean guy, right? And, and the reality is the only thing we're missing from this, what you both have put together, is that at the top of the Tea Party were the super rich elite. It was the Koch brothers. It was the Mercers. That's who was funding it because they want the mean as bread and circuses for working class white folks so that they can get the only thing they care about, the precious. Tax up for the rich. They don't want to pay taxes. They don't want Social Security. They want to get rid of Medicare because they don't want to pay bloody taxes. And sometimes when they're honest, like Mike Lee, they just say it and their voters vote for them again. (laughs) Ron Johnson and Mike Lee said, we're getting rid of your Social Security. And they're like, yeah, but the blacks can't vote, right? <laughs> they're like, we got it. We're good. <laughs> you know, it's like there's nothing, there's no cruelty that their voters won't take because it's demographic panic that's pushing it. I don't know how else to say it. But I do think that one thing that might have changed with this midterms is that the midterms have demonstrated that there is a price for that sort of naked cruelty. You know, for the last five years, there's just been impunity for it. And one of the reasons that yeah. Donald Trump sort of stroked all the uh, erogenous zones of the right is because he gave them permission to act on their basis yeah. impulses and said there would be impunity. Now we've seen a lot of um, consequences, you know, for the party that cackled at the assault on Nancy Pelosi's husband. We've seen consequences for the party that's been kind of indifferent to the plight of 10-year-old rape victims. And I think that that might lead to, if not a change of heart, at least a sort of level of hypocrisy that acknowledges that there's some things you shouldn't say out loud. Yeah, because the reason that they're so mad at the word woke is that woke just means aware, to substitute aware whenever you hear them say they hate wokeness, because young people are aware. And they hate that young people are empathetic. Not all of them. There's still a lot of mega ones in there. But the younger people, including younger white people, are not having the mean. They don't like it. And they can't get them to vote for them. Boom. That's their problem. Michelle Goldberg, Matthew Dowd, thank, thank you, you very much. We are awaiting an update in the most closely watched governor's race in America. Updated totals could be coming at any moment from Arizona. And we'll bring that to you when it happens. Coming up on the readout, the importance of the Georgia runoff and that 51st seat in the Senate that makes all the difference. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, 
which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. With a win for incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, Democrats secured the 50th seat needed to keep control of the Senate. That is huge for President Biden's ability to govern and clears the way to continue one of his most underrated successes, remaking the federal judiciary. The Democratic majority can continue confirming Biden's nominees after years of Republican leader Mitch McConnell's efforts to stack the bench with right wing ideologues. It's also critically important should a vacancy open up on the Supreme Court in the next two years. While President Biden has had an incredible two years of legislative success with a 50-50 Senate, 50 seats only retains the status quo. 51 seats with a victory in Georgia Senate runoff on December 6th really, really matters because it would reduce the ability of the senator's two conservative Democrats, West Virginia's Joe Manchin and Arizona's Kirsten Sinema, to play the obstruction game. Joining me now is Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. And Senator, thank you so much for being here. Um, we are hearing that, you know, there's forward movement on one potentially bipartisan bill to codify same-sex marriage. It's something that's out in the ether. But it is so rare to get Republicans to vote for anything righteous, right? They are very much set on voting as a block to stop anything that President Biden wants to do. So make the case against those who are saying the 51st seat doesn't matter. The Georgia race is now immaterial. Well, I think this has to sit in context of the crisis that Republicans are going through right now. They have not yet decided who's going to lead them in the Senate. And there is an argument being made by many in the Senate that they frankly weren't obstructionist enough in the last two years, that they yep. gave Democrats just a little bit of wiggle room on priority issues like infrastructure or gun violence. And so there is a real possibility that in the next two years, you aren't going to be able to find a single Republican vote for anything, which means Democrats are going to have to do everything from pass budgets to keep the government open and operating, never mind move forward the priorities that we think 90% of the American public still are with us on, like protecting democracy, making health care more affordable. Um, so it is really important to have a Democratic majority, but it does make a difference to have 50 versus 51. It means that no one Democratic senator has veto ability over the entirety of the agenda. But there's another piece of this, which is people don't know in a 53 Senate, all the committees are equally divided, Republicans and Democrats, meaning, and there's no vice president to break a tie in a committee. So good things get stuck in committees based on tie votes. There will no longer be tie votes in committees if we have a 51-seat majority. So it's just a much more governable place if you have 51 versus 50. And, and I mean, for, for those who, whose you know, eyes kind of glaze over, we start talking about committees, understand people who are watching this through the TV, Nearly every progressive 
uh, piece of progress that's passed in from the 20th and 21st century, passed with more than 60 votes for Democrats in the Senate, from the New Deal to the Great Society, you have Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, because Democrats had north of 60 votes. You have the Civil Rights Act, because Democrats had more. The voting, everything, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, Obamacare could not pass until Democrats got that 60th vote. Having 60 Democratic senators is the only way you have basically any progressive legislation that exists in the modern era. I want to go back because Biden has said that they don't have enough votes. You guys don't have enough votes to pass the codification of Roe v. Wade, which is tragic. But here's the things that Democrats could have passed had they just gotten one more seat, had they won Wisconsin. Ending the filibuster to co- and codifying abortion rights, protecting voting rights, police reform, gun reform legislation, um, you know, even the things that are coming up new- soon, funding the government, not letting us go into a debt crisis, marriage equality, all of that stuff you know, funding Ukraine. Can any of that get done even if you have 51 seats? Don't you need that 52nd? Yeah, listen, this is difficult so long as we have this anti-democratic rule in the United States Senate that requires you to get a supermajority. Our founding fathers are turning over in their graves right now. They yes. never intended for legislation to need 60 votes, a 60 percent threshold in the United States Senate. They designed a system that was intentionally hard uh, to get big things passed into law um, without the 60 vote majority. But um, a lot of this will depend on what happens in the Republican autopsy uh, over what occurred in this election. It may be that Republicans don't want uh, to be on the continual wrong side of 90 percent of Americans that think we should have tougher gun laws. And maybe that Republicans don't want to side with Donald Trump and oppose Ukraine aid. So there maybe is a potential for Republicans to join us on a handful of these things if they see the only path to electoral success in 2024 um, running through getting off the sideline on these very popular issues like supporting Ukraine or tightening up our gun laws. But that remains to be seen. As I said, there's also a potential that they take the opposite tack that they just decide to yeah. try to make governance as hard as possible. This is all going to yeah. happen in conversations that they that they have in the coming days. Uh, before I let you go, I know that you're big on, uh, on trying to force gun reform. It's another thing that's incredibly hard to get through. You had that shooting at UVA. Tragically, three uh, football players were killed uh, by a, another former player who came back and shot folks up on campus. Um, can anything like gun reform get done, in your view, Um, with 51 votes. Does that make it more possible? Well, there's certainly a possibility to get more done. We got 65 votes for uh, the gun violence bill we passed last summer. And if you look at the exit polls in this election, you see that the vast majority of Americans want tighter gun laws, and that majority is voting for Democrats by a four-to-one margin. So once again, Republicans are going to have a hard time winning in this country if they don't support additional legislation beyond what we passed this last year. But let's just be honest. um, There are more guns in this country than people right now. This nation is awash in weapons. And until you do something about stopping the black market trade of weapons, until you get these AR-15s off the street, you will continue to see tragedies like you saw on two college campuses today. So, yeah, we still have the potential to get this done. Yeah, at least treat AR-15s like you do pistols. At least make people fill out some paperwork. You don't even have to do that right now. You can just get one on impulse, which is wild. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy, thank you, sir. Really appreciate you being here. And we are still waiting on those chairs, waiting on those updated vote totals from Arizona. We'll bring that to you. Steve is going to wave his arms, and we're going to go right back to him if it happens. But up next, the critically important task of turning out the vote in that Georgia runoff and how Republicans made it harder. We'll be right back. 
Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Back in 2021, after Democrats won both of Georgia's runoff elections and with them, the United States Senate majority, Georgia Republicans fought like hell to prevent that from ever happening again, passing an anti-voter law to make it harder to vote, including during runoffs. Once again, a pivotal Georgia Senate race is heading to a runoff, this time between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. But under the new law, there will only be four weeks before the December 6th runoff, meaning less time to vote early in person and tight windows for mail-in ballots. Oh, and here's another hiccup. Early voting will be barred on one of the Saturdays before the final runoff voting day because state law prohibits in-person early voting on Saturdays if a holiday is within two days beforehand. Those holidays are Thanksgiving, but also, get this, a state holiday created to honor Confederate general, slave-holding reprobate, and racist icon Robert E. Lee. With voters, especially black voters, up against a garbage holiday and all this voter suppression, how do how does one reignite voter enthusiasm for the state's third Senate runoff in two years? Joining me now is Latasha Brown, co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund, and who in 2020 helped turn Georgia blue. And Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And uh, Tia Mitchell, I do want to start with you because it, it seems that Gabriel Sherman, uh, and also who's the you know guy who deals with elections in uh, in Georgia, and also their Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, got this wrong. Went on TV and claimed that there would be Saturday voting. Turns out that was wrong. There were threats of lawsuits, Mark Elias's group and others. How can it be that this Jim Crow law is going to make it harder for folks to vote and these two state officials didn't know it? Yeah, so there is a lot of debate now. As you mentioned, Mark Elias actually put out a memo saying the law is being misinterpreted and he does believe that Saturday voting could be possible But what Gabriel Sterling and Brad Raffensperger have said is that their attorneys reviewed the law and they don't think it's possible and that they basically misspoke. You know, this all, as you mentioned, comes as a result of that new election law. And we know even when that law was being debated, reporters like me and my colleagues at the AJC asked Republicans, why are you doing this? They didn't have a clear answer. Um, It was apparent that a lot of the changes that Republicans implemented in Senate Bill 202 was in direct response to the Democrat successes in in, uh, 2020 in those 2021 runoffs. One of them is changing the game, changing how runoffs are done. 
Yeah. And, you know, Latasha, um, we all know, if you know a little bit of American history, the whole purpose for runoffs was to prevent the recon reconstruction from happening again, prevent black folks from being able to vote. So even if you win in a majority, if black candidates choose person X and they win in a majority, if it's not 50, they get a do over. That's the only reason these laws exist in these states. So, I mean, I, I personally think never trust Brian Kemp when it comes to voting or anyone in his regime. Is this going to obstruct the work of people who, like your organization, try to get particularly black voters out to the polls? No, I think it certainly makes it more difficult. Let's be honest. So they changed the law that shortened the period for people to vote. Then on top of that, a Saturday or early voting day, now we've lost that. And so even in that same law, what it says is it says to reschedule to be able to provide early voting as soon as possible, which means he could literally actually have it on that Tuesday or Wednesday if he chose to before the holiday or even the Saturday after. So here it is. You're going to cut out a day but not provide a remedy when he actually has the right to be able to provide a remedy. You know, what we also know is that at the end of the day, that what we're seeing is part of SB 202. We've been saying this all along. It was created to suppress the vote. What I believe is that organizations such as ours have decided that we're not going to black down, that ultimately we are organizing to make sure that we actually get people out. But yes, we're seeing um, tactic after tactic after tactic to restrict access to the ballot. But I think many groups like ours are really frustrated and are really fired up, and we're going to organize to make sure we get our people out. And I, Latasha, I just leave you just a moment, because, you know, when you think about it, the fact that Democrats have to fight for this 151st seat, where they really could have had two more. Because I think about North Carolina. We've talked about this. I think about Wisconsin, especially. Let me just show you this. In Georgia, uh, white voters comp comprise 62 percent of the vote. Black voters are 28 percent of the vote. So there's a reason they want to obstruct black voters, because 90 percent of black voters supported Warnock over Herschel Walker the first time. But then you go to a state like Wisconsin, where black voters are a much, much smaller share, just 6 percent of the vote. But they're 40 percent of the makeup of Milwaukee. They voted overwhelmingly for Mandela Barnes. But the turnout was horrible. The campaign, the Barnes campaign didn't do a great job getting them out. Same kind of things happened in North Carolina. Are Democrats not focusing enough on doing more than just counting on organizations like yours to do all the work and not doing more get out the vote with black voters specifically because they do often provide the margins of victory? Oh, absolutely. Campaigns take resources. What we've seen even yes. in this election and many groups on the ground in Georgia have been talking about that we've not seen the kind of resources on the ground that we saw in 2018, although many of us felt like this was a more critical race. So now here we are with groups that have actually expended their resources, that we've put a lot of human capital to not only just get the vote out, but to address some of the voter suppression that we've actually had to overcome because of SB 202. In addition, that I think if we're serious about it, we have to recognize, and I've said this repeatedly, we're not just in an air war. We're on a ground war. It is it's yeah. not polls at the elections that we've shown that. It's people. And in order to get people, we've got to actually be able to touch, organize, canvas, and get those people to vote. And organizations like yours and obviously Stacey Abrams' work and Ense Ufat and groups have done a lot of work to get the vast majority of Georgians registered to vote. But you have to get people out. You have to actually turn people out and yet that costs money. Tia, I want to go to you on the other side here because it's obvious what the case would be for Warnock. Reelect him, prevent this candidate who is not qualified to replace him. And the passion will be for Warnock and keeping him in office. I get that. On the other side, they're already fighting about whether they can have Ron DeSantis, who has moved not one election outside of Georgia, uh, outside of Florida, or Trump, and they both won't work together. What is the argument that the campaigns are making for Walker, if there is one? So one of their big arguments is no longer on the table, which was a vote for Walker will help 
Republicans control the Senate. So that's off the table. But what we're still seeing from Walker's campaign is that, you know, they keep on tying Warnock to Joe Biden. They say he votes for Joe Biden too often. He doesn't speak for Georgians. He's not the right person for Georgia. And so that's really been Walker's kind of pitch to voters is that what he offers is more aligned with what voters in Georgia want. And um, voters in Georgia don't want a rubber stamper for Joe Biden. They want someone who's going to be more conservative, have more conservative values and principles in that seat in the Senate. Then the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, who <laughs> was a native Georgian. Okay, good luck with that. Uh, well, you know. uh, yeah, that's King. Listen, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because one of the things that they often make is they actually underestimate black voters. And so I think what we're going to see, you know, in the famous word of Jamal Bryant, that that we don't need a walker. We need somebody that's going to run and going to fight for us. Take two minutes and go listen to that, that sermon because, oh, Lord Jesus. Natasha Brown, Tia Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thank you both very much. Coming up, we'll get an update from Steve the Cornaxter. Map Daddy is coming back on the big board. Latest with that on the next, right after this commercial break. We got to pay for this. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, control of the House has still not been called as several races continue to be tabulated. There are currently 18 uncalled races with fewer than 10 potentially playing key roles in deciding the balance of power in the House, believe it or not. Actually, you should believe it. Uh, I'm back with Steve Kornacki, the big board, breaking down the very latest with those races. What is going on, Steve? Yeah, let's take a look here. This is the big map. Anything you see in yellow is uncalled. So right now, Republicans have at least 212 seats, 218 you need for the majority. Democrats, at least 206. So that means there are 17 uncalled races here, uncalled Democrat versus Republican races. To get to 218, Republicans, their magic number is six. They got to win six from this list. And for Democrats, their magic number is 12. They got to win a dozen from this list. And the Republicans have by far right now the easier path to hit that 218 number. A lot of it has to do with what we're waiting on right now in Arizona, the sixth district of Arizona. I'm going to show you right here. Part of that is in Pima County, where any minute now we're expecting a big release of votes. You see, the Republican advantage has been climbing in this district. It's now nearly 3000 votes. And the Pima portion of this district has been friendly in these most recent updates to the Republicans. So this is one Republicans could be in the next few minutes poised to uh, extend their lead and the Democrats are going to need a really good update from Pima County, from the Pima portion of this district. Also, the first district of Arizona, when we get those Maricopa County numbers, which we're expecting somewhere around the top of the hour here, uh, Dave Schweikert, the Republican incumbent, he did very well in last night's Maricopa County update. If he does it again, he could build a lead here that the Democrats just may not be able to catch. So right there, that could be two for Republicans. And there are several others where Republicans are in very good position right now. You look at the 22nd District of New York. This is around Syracuse. Oh, I think we just got I'm being told we just got results from Pima County. So I'm going to go out to the Arizona governor's race here and see what because this is this is a big update. They said 24,000 votes would be released. 24,000 votes have been released out of Pima County. It's where Tucson is. It's the second biggest in the state. You can see uh, the lead for Katie Hobbs, the Democrat now in the governor's race, has moved up to north of 29,000 votes. And uh, I'm sorry, say again. I got somebody in here. What were you saying, Adam? 
Okay, I thought we were getting something else there. I thought I heard something else, and I didn't. It's a 29,000-vote lead now statewide for Katie Hobbs. This was significant because, again, we expected this update from Pima County of 24,000 votes to break the Democrats' way. It did indeed break the Democrats' way. That's about what we expected, a net gain there of nearly 4,000 votes for Hobbs in the statewide tally. That sets the stage for what's going to be coming anytime starting about 15 minutes from now. Officials have indicated Mm -hmm. in Maricopa County that somewhere in the eight o'clock hour East Coast time, they are going to release their final giant batch of votes. And this is from by far the biggest county in the state. And you can see the stakes for Carrie Lake. This really is this is her Hail Mary pass. What's coming up in Maricopa County, because she has now fallen behind nearly 30,000 votes, 29,048 to be exact, statewide. We are talking about a very specific type of vote that's going to be reported out of Maricopa County at eight o'clock. These are mail in ballots that voters dropped off at the polls on Election Day. This has been a somewhat Republican friendly batch of votes as it's been tallied the last few nights in Maricopa County. But Lake has not been hitting nearly the numbers she needs to hit. She doesn't just need to win this next batch of votes and cut a few thousand votes off of Katie Hobbs's lead. She needs to win it overwhelmingly. Talking like, you know, mid 60s or something like that. So a very big moment in this governor's race with that release from Pima County that we just got a very big moment we could be about 10 minutes away from in Arizona. Wow. It's going down to the wire, but it's like a kind of a wide wire at this point. It's interesting. Steve Kornacki. All right. Wave your hands. If before eight o'clock you get anything else, let me know. Thank you very much, man. Really appreciate you. Cool. All right. uh, With those additional numbers coming in from Maricopa County, um, as those additional numbers come in from Maricopa County, we'll go right back to Steve and bring them to you. Meanwhile, new accusations about Trump's misuse of power and his latest bid at deflecting blame for stashing all those classified documents. That's coming up right after this. In his ongoing efforts to belittle his former little buddy, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, last week, Donald Trump claimed without evidence that as president, he used the FBI to secure Florida's 2018 election from being, quote, stolen from DeSantis and now Senator Rick Scott. That admission raised a lot of eyebrows, including from legal commentators who asked if the Justice Department ought to be looking into yet another potential crime by the former president. Now, we should note it was Rick Scott who at the time was screaming about supposedly fraudulent voting in heavily black Broward County because, of course, while DeSantis's race had already been called on election night. And while there is no evidence that the FBI did get involved, the, the fact that Trump would so casually drop the idea that he would use the FBI to flip an election is a good reminder of who he is. He reportedly also wanted to stick the IRS on his perceived political opponents. And staying on brand, he was a no-show today for his deposition in front of the January 6th committee for which he was subpoenaed last month. Because subpoena subshmina, all right? You know, I mean, am I right if you're Trump? In the last hour, the committee released a statement saying, in part, the truth is that Donald Trump, like several of his closest allies, is hiding from the select committee's investigation, refusing to do what more than a thousand other witnesses have done. Donald Trump orchestrated a scheme to overturn a presidential election and block the transfer of power. So he is obligated to provide answers to the American people. In the days ahead, the committee will evaluate next steps in the litigation and regarding the former president's noncompliance. Well, Trump might not want to say more about his attempted coup. His ever loyal vice president, who Trump backed insurrectionists, sought to hang, is now speaking out. Join me now. Is Hugo Lowell, congressional reporter for The Guardian, and Charles Coleman Jr., civil rights attorney, former prosecutor, and MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, Charles, I do want to start with you. Can Trump just blow off the subpoena legally? 
Well, Joe, the answer to that is simply no, he can't. He did file in court a suit attempting to block the subpoena from forcing his uh, compelling to testify. What he said in the suit essentially is that while other presidents have been forced to testify or have testified before, they have not been compelled to basically against their will. It is curious to find out, and, and I'm watching this as well as everyone else, whether the committee will seek to enforce the subpoena in court because that's going to take some time. And unless they get it expedited, ultimately, Trump's biggest weapon at this point is his watch. He can run out the clock, which is what we all know he has intended to do this entire time. And so for the committee to press forward in court, it then becomes a matter of precedent. It is a question of how much protection, how how many rights does a former president have, not a sitting president, but a former president have in terms of their willingness to cooperate with Congress? And so while this is a case of first impression for some and may be moot by the time we get to a new Congress, I do think it is a question that is important enough that it needs answering. And so the committee should press forward. Yeah, I mean, this is a president, uh, an ex-president, I should say, Hugo, who has blown off and gotten away with not just taking classified documents, but apparently having him in his desk, per your reporting, had him in his desk, not even in some box somewhere pretending to store them accurately, and has so far gotten away with it. Uh, and I want to talk to you about this idea of blowing off the committee. I want to play for you Mike Pence, who finally has said something that sounds normal and human about what he went through on January 6th. This is uh, Mike Pence. It angered me. But I turned to my daughter who was standing nearby and I said, it doesn't take courage to break the law. It takes courage to uphold the law. I mean, the president's words were reckless. It was clear he decided to be part of the problem. And Hugh, you're reporting that uh, Donald Trump is now suing again to block the January 6th committee from getting records that are important. And that's part of the subpoena as well. Is there anything in your reporting that suggests that Mike Pence might actually talk to the committee rather than just talking to reporters and selling a book? Yeah, there's no indication he's going to go before the January 6th committee. And I think the committee is really at the stage now where they're writing their report. I mean, just in terms of the timeline, they really have to start uh, finishing their work up there. But I think the one entity that is going to be interested in talking to Mike Pence is the Justice Department. You know, he's talking about how Trump was reckless. He seems to have, and in fact, we all know he has more insight into the conversations that he had with Trump than he's letting on. And when you're compelled to testify before a federal federal grand jury, you know, that's really when uh, witnesses start to open up, as, as we all know. And I think that's where this goes next. I think the DOJ is going to be really interested in talking to him and trying to figure out the details of the conversations he had with Trump January 5 and on January 6, because those are the conversations that really matter. Right. And I mean, so, so Charles, I guess this is the question. If the DOJ decides to, to duplicate what the committee's done and subpoena Donald Trump to talk about what he did January 6th, maybe to talk about stealing those classified records, if subpoenas go to him, can he blow them off the way he has blown the committee off? And if he did try to do that, what would, in theory, happen? Well, he could try, but I think that he he would have a much less successful time in trying to do that with the DOJ for the simple reason that the Department of Justice isn't on the same clock that the January 6th committee is. And so whereas we are expecting that upon a new Congress being installed, that the January 6th committee will ultimately be dissolved and that question will be proven moot with regard to their subpoena 
the DOJ has all the time in the world and limited resources. And so they will be able to fight that in court and ultimately could potentially get an order where they ultimately find where Trump is found to be in contempt, where he does not necessarily, where he doesn't comply, whether it's with a federal grand jury or the DOJ's intent to interview him as part of a criminal investigation. You know, Hugo, on uh, Saturday Night Live uh, the other night, uh, Dave Chappelle made a really good point that a lot of the reasons people like Trump is that he just showed, I can just defy the law. And they'd never seen anybody just so flagrantly do it. But I think for a lot of people, it's shocking to think, you know, that reality winner took one document and spent five years in prison. This guy literally has gotten away with taking classified documents. Nothing's happened. He threatened to sick the IRS on his political opponents. His former cabinet member admitted it. Nothing's happened. And then he gets a subpoena from the January 6th committee and he blows it off. How much impunity does at this point, you're the reporter here. Does do the Trump folks feel he is untouchable for any crime? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you talk to people uh, close to the former president, including his uh, in-house counsels, they really see uh, a lot of the investigations around him as toothless. And part of the uh, p- part of the discussions that they have is like, look, you know, liberals and Democrats have tried to come after Trump so many times and each time they fail. So Trump's feeling very emboldened. And that's the problem uh, when you don't follow through with these investigations. And I think actually Merrick Garland, you know, the attorney general is taking a different tack here. I mean, the Mar-a-Lago uh, documents investigation has been the one anomaly. And I think Trump knows this. And part of the reason why he's looking at announcing his candidacy tomorrow is because he thinks running as a candidate will insulate him from the Justice Department. Everyone I've spoken to at the DOJ, though, says otherwise. And I think the fact that Merrick Garland signed off on the search warrant uh, is an indication that DOJ means business. Well, well, you'd think they would. They do it with regular citizens. He's just a regular citizen at this point. Hugo Lowell, Charles Coleman, thank you both very much. That is tonight's readout. We could be just moments away from an important update on the Arizona governor's race. So stay right here with MSNBC. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.